morning, everybody. If you grab your pew Bibles, we're going to uh, read from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And you can find that on page 666. Make of that what you will. But most of it's on 667. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and the patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not the wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom perseveres, uh, sorry, wisdom preserves those who have it. This is the word of the Lord. What Amy didn't say um, about the trivia night last night is that the winning team was led by an astrophysicist and was called Britney Spears. So... There's something quite, not quite right about the universe, I think, uh, that uh, allows that to happen. But anyway, that's who we were beaten by. So I think we did pretty well. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that you get up and check your social media and you notice that uh, there's a Facebook invitation to a party at a friend's place and you think, great, this person always has really good parties and it's usually people that uh, you enjoy hanging out with who are there, so you're excited But as you're sending a response back to that party invitation, your phone rings, and that's not quite such good news. Another friend of yours has just died in a car accident. And another friend is calling to tell you when the funeral will be, and unbelievably, it's on the same day. Which do you go to? If you've ever found yourself in a situation like that, or if you do in the future, the writer of Ecclesiastes has some advice for you. As he has studied all that happens under the sun, he's thought about this very situation. And his advice is there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. He says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Now that is rather a strange statement, isn't it? It makes him sound like a very uninteresting person rather than a wise man. Certainly not the advice you'd be hoping for if you're in this situation. I know if I had the choice between going to a party or a funeral, I'd pick the party every time, and I suspect you would too. But what does he mean when he says it's better to go to a house of mourning? He obviously doesn't mean it would be more fun. Uh, that you'd have a better time because no one has fun at a funeral. So why is it better? Well, if we read on, he tells us why. It's a matter of wisdom, he says. In verse 4, the heart of the wise 
is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. See, wisdom, as we've seen, as we've worked our way through Ecclesiastes, is, is about dealing with reality, dealing with life as it is. And the teacher is saying to us, it is wiser to go to a funeral. It is more in touch with reality to go to a funeral because death is the end of every person. Verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of all. The living should take this to heart. Now, I've conducted hundreds of funerals over the years. It may even be thousands. I'm not sure. I haven't kept count. But it's very interesting seeing how people conduct themselves at funerals. They say all sorts of things. Often they make it very clear that they don't really want to be there. Uh, lots of people who have never been to a funeral before ask millions of questions. Uh, they want to know exactly what's going to go on, what they can expect, because they want to try and control the whole thing as much as they can. And so in general, they'll turn up with their sunglasses so that if they should happen to get sad and cry, no one will notice. But the teacher is saying it is right for us to feel death's power, a power to break a power to tear down, to bring us to our knees, a power to get us reaching for our handkerchiefs and tissues and headache tablets, power to trouble and disturb and bother. It's appropriate that we allow death to shake us. And so if we avoid the house of mourning, he says, then we are fools. Only the fool does that. We are not in touch with reality. Because according to the teacher, death is the great reality under the sun. And the teacher wants us to feel that power. He wants us to be troubled and disturbed by it. And that's why he comes back to that subject in chapter 9 as well, where he talks about death as the common destiny of everybody. And so if you flick over a couple of pages, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he first of all says that death claims everyone. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. So what he's saying there is death doesn't care if you're good or bad. It doesn't care if you're clean or unclean, if you're religious or not religious. Death claims everyone. Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. Timothy McVeigh and Mary MacKillop. Your mother... Your father, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your child. Death doesn't care. It will take them all. And one day it will claim you as well. Death is the great leveller. Secondly, he says, nothing is worse than death. You look in verses 3 and 4. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. 
The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now that's a very provocative comparison that he's making there, isn't it? The lion was the king of the beasts. It was a symbol of royal power and might. The dog, however, was usually associated in these days with filth and poverty. They weren't the kind of nice domesticated animals that we know today. They were mangy, pack-hunting pests, a symbol not of the king but of the peasant. But he's saying here that a live peasant is better off than a dead king because once you're dead, that's it. The king may be rich and powerful, he may have everything in his life, but when he dies, he has nothing. Tolstoy, the Russian writer, wrote a short story which illustrates the uh, teacher's point very well. It was about a time in Russia when the government was giving away land. And a certain man saw an ad in the newspaper and so he travelled to the place where this was going to happen and he waited for the day of the land grab to happen. On that day, he and a whole bunch of other people turned up in the morning and they were told how the deal would work. Each man would be given four pegs and told that they could have as much land as they were able to mark out during the day but they had to get back to the starting point by sunset. And so they all waited for the sun to rise and when the sun rose, the man set off as fast as his legs could carry him. And he ran first of all towards the north. Uphill and down dale he went. After he'd been running for several hours, he decided he should put his first peg into the ground. And so he did that and then he started heading west. And again he went as fast as he could. He was getting tired but he had to keep going. Finally he stopped for a quick bite of lunch, put in his second peg and then he began to head south. And by now the sun was quite high in the sky. It was hot but he knew he needed to push on and so he picked up the pace. A few more hours passed. He realised he better put in his third peg and head back toward the starting point. So he climbed to the top of a hill. Uh, which, is, which he wanted to include in his, uh, in his piece of land. And he saw down in the valley that there was a, a beautiful river, a nice little va- beautiful river running through the valley. He thought, I need to include that in my, in my piece of land. And so he ran a little bit faster, put his peg in over the side, other side of the river, and then he headed back home. And he knew that he was running out of time. The sun was setting fast, and so he picked up the fa- pace He went as fast as he could and for a while he didn't think he would make it. But as the sun was setting, he saw the finishing line ahead of him. Uh, And all the others were cheering him on as he picked up the pace and raced to cross the line just as the sun sunk below the horizon. But as he crossed, he had exerted himself to such an extent that he fell over the line and died and they took him off and buried him. Now, I didn't tell you what Tolstoy called the story, did I? The name of the story was a question. How much land does a man need? And in the end, it's not much, is it? So how should we respond to all of this? Because it's a bit of a downer, isn't it, what the the teacher has to say to us this morning? But Solomon's response isn't a downer. He says, 
very similar to what we've heard him say on many occasions before. He basically says, eat, drink and be merry. If you look in chapter 9 and verses 7 to 10, he says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom." Now, it sounds a bit like a Commonwealth bank ad, doesn't it? You know, go out with your friends, play with your kids, go on a holiday, uh, go out to a restaurant, buy a new set of golf clubs, have fun, do it all. Because under the sun, nothing else makes any sense. Under the sun, the ultimate reality is death. And it blights everything. It renders everything useless and futile and vain. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this passage very helpful and his message helpful because I am conscious that I live in a fallen world. I've been hurt by the things that have happened to me in life. I bear the scars of living in this world. And so do you, I suspect. And the writer is saying you have to take life as it comes. You have to suck all the good out of it that you can. And what's more, he says, it's okay to do that. He gives us permission to do that. I find that helpful. I think that's a really helpful perspective. But I must say, I don't find it completely satisfying. Because if life under the sun is all there is, is is my life and work and love meaningless in the big scheme of things? Is that what he's saying to me? And ultimately, I think the answer to that question is no. See, we need to remember that the teacher is studying and exploring by wisdom all that is done under the sun. He's probing and investigating and questioning all that happens to see if he can find the meaning of life. And his conclusion is that under the sun, there are no answers to those questions. But that doesn't mean there are no answers. And it doesn't mean that life is meaningless. It just means that the answers aren't found under the sun. They're not found without reference to God. We need to look up. We need to look elsewhere to find them. And the elsewhere that I think we need to look this morning is to the New Testament, and particularly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in that passage, Paul talks about the fact that death is not the final word, but rather resurrection is. Uh, If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and at verse 32, very interestingly, Paul echoes there the thought of the teacher because he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That, that's, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying, isn't it? If under the sun is all there is, if life is bounded by birth and then death, if death is the ultimate reality, then go for it. Suck life dry. Get every little bit of juice you can out of it. But, but notice that Paul is saying here that death is not the ultimate reality. 
1 Corinthians 15 is that great passage on the resurrection where Paul argues that the gospel is not just about Jesus dying, but more importantly about him rising from the dead and, and, and conquering death. And he goes on to say that because Jesus has risen, we too will die. Death is not the end. There is life after death. And that makes all the difference because it means that the meaninglessness and vanity of life in this world is transcended by the meaning that God will give all things into eternity. You see, it would be very easy as, as you're confronted by the spectre of death in Ecclesiastes to just be paralysed by it. It appears everywhere and seems to tarnish and spoil everything that, that, uh, that we are confronted with and particularly the good things. But Paul says here that we don't need to fear death because death itself has been defeated. Jesus has defeated it through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. But the big question that leaves us with is how do we live in the light of that truth? Does what Paul say mean that what Ecclesiastes is saying is wrong advice? And the answer is I don't think so. What the teacher has told us in Ecclesiastes is right. This world is meaningless. It is vanity. It is fallen. And because of that, we need to be realistic about life in this world. We need to realise that because it's fallen, it will disappoint us. It will hurt us and trouble us. It will cause us at times to worry, to toss and turn on our beds at night, to cry, to groan, to despair to lose hope. It will cause us to do all of those things at times. But it will also afford us great joy. There'll be tears of joy, moments when we could burst with pride from our skins as we see what a husband or wife or child or loved one has achieved. There'll be moments of laughter, of fun, of good company, of great conversation enjoyed with good food and wine. There'll be the feeling of, a satisfaction, of satisfaction at a job well done, of a project that we've completed on time. Uh, but, uh, and the teacher says to us, we need to enjoy those moments. We need to enjoy those simple pleasures of life. But we need to do it remembering Paul's perspective, which is that what we do here and now will resonate into eternity. And so the teacher's advice is not an excuse to go on this reckless binge of pleasure in this life. Rather, it's an invitation to enjoy life now in a way that will allow it to have meaning for eternity. In other words, enjoy it hand in hand with God in relationship with him. The resurrection means that we mustn't live for the moment, but we must live in the moment with an eye to the future. William Gladstone was the Prime Minister of Great Britain uh, at the turn of um, two centuries ago, I guess now. Um, he was a man who dominated political life while he was Prime Minister, and he was also a committed Christian. One day a friend of Gladstone's brought his teenage son to meet him, and Gladstone asked the boy a question. He said to him, what are you going to do with your life? The boy replied, well, firstly, I'm going to get a good education. Good, Gladstone said. Then what? Well, I'll join a law firm. Good, he said. Then what? 
Well, I'll get a political career. And he smiled and he said, good, then what? Then I'll serve well and become prime minister. Good, then what? Well, I'll keep a journal, I'll write my memoirs and help other people. Good, he said, then what? The young man at that point stopped and he thought for a moment and he said, well, I guess one day I'll die. And Gladstone uh, replied to him, well, whatever else may happen, that is certain. Then what? The young man said, well, I haven't really thought about religion. Gladstone said, well, one piece of advice. Go home, read your Bible, get down on your knees and think through to the end of your life. Friends, I wonder if you have thought through to the end of your life this morning, to the very end of it. If you haven't, then it would be a good idea because it will end one day for every one of us. But that is not the end. Death is certain, but it's not ultimate. It doesn't get the last word because there is life beyond the grave. And it's only as we come to face with both our mortality and our immortality that we're able to live life in this world here and now in a way that honours God. That's the perspective, I think, of the teacher. It's a very helpful perspective, and I hope it's a perspective that we can all act on as we move into this next week and into the rest of the days God blesses us with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us grace to think through to the end of our lives. And we pray that you would also give us faith to be connected to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who has conquered death and who gives us resurrection life through his life here and now. Father, we thank you for his confident assertion to Lazarus that he is the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. Father, give us, give us that eternal life, we pray, and help us to live in the here and now, enjoying the good things that you've given to us, but doing so with an eye to the better life that you will give us in, in eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.